first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And welcome to our first podcast of this new year, 2022. But we're still going to take one more look back at 2021. It was a year of great change, including change right here at the Transporter Room. But before we delve into the year it was, I want to delve into some of the news right now. And to beginning, let's play a game. I'll take transphobia for a thousand, Mayim. The answer is, I'd like to thank all the people who have taken the time during this busy holiday season to reach out and explain to me that actually I'm a man. Every single one of you is the first person ever to make that clever point, which has never once crossed my mind. How did Amy Schneider tell trans folks to go to hell and have them thank her for the suggestion? When I first heard that people were cracking back on Amy Schneider, who has spent the last, near the last month, really running over Jeff Jeopardy and winning, what, 23 straight now, over $850,000 of winning, qualified for the Tournament of Champions next year, or excuse me, this year as the case may be, and really doing well and getting a lot of people into the tent, looking at some Jeopardy, me included, and doing a great job. And by the way, Ms. Schneider, congratulations. It just goes to show you there are three certainties in life, death, taxes, and certain cis people are going to lose their dang mind when a trans person, especially a transgender woman, is doing well. And Amy Schneider is a transgender woman, and she's doing quite well. To anybody who's unhinged about this, if you're complaining about her winning on Jeopardy, then you know what? Don't try and couch it. Just own your transphobia. This leads me to the Carly New Year's resolution. I hope that Many people, especially trans people, allies, friends, and friends of the podcast, take this to heart in the 2022. It is time to stop sparring with people, be it online or in real life, who just aren't serious. Because if you have something transphobic to say, because Amy Snyder's winning on Jeopardy, you're not a serious person, you're not worth anyone's time. And we're not going to give you any of ours. And it's bad enough that they're going after trans people who want to play a sport, but Jeopardy, really, really, that doesn't make a darn bit of sense. But then again, maybe it does, because, you know, when trans people are having some trans joy, certain cis people just feel the need to step on it. 
I also want to give a thumbs up for 2022 right out of the gate. And it goes to Lucas Draper. Now, Lucas Draper is on the swimming and diving team at Division Three Oberlin College in Ohio. And Lucas wrote an op-ed a couple days ago that landed in SwimmingWorldMagazine.com, where basically Lucas is an athlete stuck up for another transgender athlete, namely Leah Thomas from the University of Pennsylvania, who's turned into everybody's brand new trans villain in sports. Mr. Draper did pretty darn good job of making their points known. And by the way, we're going to post their op-ed right underneath the post for this podcast on our Twitter page, and we're going to post a link to it at 10 forward. Pretty much Lucas just put it on the line saying, this is why Leah has the right to compete, but also, and more importantly, Draper said this. Before I even begin to delve into the complex issue of transgender athlete participation in sports, I need to make it clear that Leah Thomas is a person first. No matter if you agree or disagree on whether she should be allowed to compete as a woman, she deserves basic human decency. Now, where did I hear that before? I heard that a little bit less than a month ago from the editor-in-chief of Swimming World magazine who called for compassion, empathy, called for civility in the discussion. Of course, he and many of his staff at Swimming World magazine kind of forgotten that because every article got more and more transphobic than the last. Just a note, as part of our no sparring with, with people who aren't serious pledge, another thing is don't read the comments. And believe me, you don't want to read the comments on this one. Because I would say 99% of them were just transphobic to the point of nausea. But it goes back once again to something I hope I see in the new year. And that's people doing what Lucas Draper did. Speaking out. Even when your voice shakes. Even when you're outnumbered. Speak out. Speak up. And someone who did speak out and speak up was our guest on our first show of 2021. A year ago, January, we had writer, and now we can add author as a title, Brittany De La Creta. And they came in to talk about an article that they wrote, which was an untold story in the entire transports inclusion discussion. Now, some people ask, where are trans boys and men in all this? Well, they wrote an answer. That, again, I say, is one of the most important stories on the issue in the last couple of years. I wanted to talk to boys who had competed with boys because I wanted to know what was important and affirming about that and, like, why that mattered to be able to compete um, in that category. And I kind of assumed that it would be the, like, just liberal states that we typically think of as having more trans-friendly policies would be where the students were coming from. And that really was not the case. I had plenty of, of kids that I talked to that were from the Midwest. Um, actually, really good Midwestern representation in the story uh, and also uh, East Coast. But I was really surprised by that. And what surprised me is one of the students that I talked to from Wichita, Kansas, told me, when I go to track meets, almost 
every time I'm at a track meet, I am not the only trans athlete. We're out there. We're not making the news and we're not making a big deal about it. And our teammates know who we are and we know who we are. Like we are there. And he said, I feel like people assume there's not trans people and trans kids in the Midwest, but I see us all the time. I'm not the only one. And it's just that nobody ever talks about it. That's one of the things that struck me being a transplanted Midwesterner was seeing so many Midwestern kids. And at one level, it's good that kids in the areas where I grew up now are getting this opportunity. It seems like people are moving forward, but how much different would it be if these kids were running at the front? In talking to the kids you talk to, how much of that plays in their mind saying that this would go a lot different if I was winning, for example? Yeah, it's a good question. And especially at the youth level, something I tried to stay away from in my story was... I didn't want to get tied up in issues of hormones and biology and physiology. I think that that really dehumanizes uh, the, the athletes and in this case, children like who just want to play sports. So I didn't get too much into that, but I do think relevant to your question as more kids have access to gender affirming care, we hope um, they may be going on puberty blockers earlier and that may impact what you know what hormones they're on but I think because of the age you're like right around that pubescent age when they're competing against cisgender boys who are going through like a masculinizing puberty it's hard to like know at what point that equals out I think we will know more um what that looks like as kids have more access to these things I do know one of one of the sources in the story that I, I use the name Ezra and he was from Maryland he was the top runner on the girls team and then switched to the boys team and started testosterone which um at 16 not all um kids under 18 will have you know any surgeries or start hormones and he was able to and so his case was a little bit different than some of the other boys that i talked to and i did ask about the competition level um and he was not at the top but he also was not at the back. Like he mm. was right in the middle of the pack. Now, February opened with a special story about a family and a trans child who just wants to play. A human side of the issue often glossed over. We got to meet a 10-year-old named Zoe and the parents who have her back. The, the thing about transitioning is that it's not just changing, oh, maybe will you dress? It's changing to be yourself and not and when kids and like when i didn't transition i didn't feel like myself at all like i felt like i felt like me not transitioning and because also i didn't know what it was but then when we watched um what's what was the movie called that it has like a girl with a beard in it oh. greatest showman oh. and i asked the girl with the beard, how is that possible? And you said transgender. And and then she told me what that was. And then literally a night after, I'm pretty sure, I said, I should have your private mom, not dad's. You started to be able to find the words. Because mm -hmm. I didn't know what it meant because I knew that I didn't want to be a boy, but then I was like, but is that even possible to be a girl, even though you're born a male? So then when I found that out, I was like, even though I'm scared, I need to tell them. I can't just lie to my parents forever. I need to be myself and I need to change this now. What is your thoughts on you doing your job as parents 
being this hard-boiled race political issue. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you, you, it's very hurtful when people in powerful positions label your child as a threat because it's very easy to believe when you don't understand something. These transgender kids are an easy target because so many very well-natured people want to protect female sports. And for some silly reason, they think transgender girls are not girls when in reality they are. And the idea of denying transgender girls the ability to have friends and camaraderie and fitness and all the wonderful solid relationships that happen through sports to say, well, they don't deserve to have those things because we have to protect, you know, female sports and somehow these transgender youth are going to ruin female sports is, is just misguided and deceptive. On the backside of February, we had a familiar name who's grown up and moved ahead. Mac Beggs, former college wrestler, now MMA hopeful, was speaking out alongside advocate Troy Gleason. And he said something that would, in many ways, set a tone for 2021 as a year of inclusion. We're here. Like, hey, we're here. We're here. Like, exactly what, you know, for and here's a who. Like, we've always been here. So we just need to keep on having these conversations. We need to start going up to these politicians and these legislators and being like, hey, we have been here since the dawn of time. We are just now not scared to now say something. We are here and we are going to say something now. With March came wisdom. College sports equity consultant Jen Fry joined us to open the month. Well, you know, the first question I started to ask people of like, well, what does support mean to you? If someone can't do X, Y, and Z, what, what does support mean? And what does inclusion mean? If you're saying, you know, because you always hear they're like, well, you know, I support them to do what they want. And I believe in inclusion, but they can't do this. I'm like, well, what's inclusion mean then? Like that they can walk around you, but that's about it. That they can shop at the grocery store with you. Like, what does inclusion and support really mean? And then I also ask them, if your child was to be trans, would you want them to be able to play sports? And you hear, yeah, I'd support them, I'd go, but what? But but there's nothing then. If you would want, if you wouldn't want this done to your kid, why do you want it done to other kids? And I think the problem is many people don't think that their kid could be trans, right? It's like it, it can happen to other people, but it won't, my kids won't, it won't happen to them. I'm like, no. It's anybody's kids. It's anyone's family's friends. So this idea of inclusion and support is like thinking of it really saying, if my kid were to be trans, how would I want them treated and supported? So I try and make it very personal to them and make them think about it that way. But also like this legislation is bullshit. I mean, like some of it, like having to do like actual genital exams, like you literally want kids to be touched in order to, to prove that they can play a sport. I mean, like the length that people and legislators will go is just appalling. I mean, absolutely appalling. And she was followed by some titans of the community. Bryn Tannehill joined us to talk about her new book, American Fascism, which broke down trans rights and transphobia through the lenses of public policy 
and the current contention within the body politic. As I look at what's going on with the Republican Party taking trans people as the wedge issue, as the group of people along with immigrants that they blame for everything that's bad in the universe, right? Um, and I talk about this a little bit in the section on the characteristics of fascism, but needing a boogeyman, needing a group enemies that are both simultaneously pathetic and weak in their minds, and yet strong enough to destroy everything. These are central aspects of fascism, which when you start talking about creating a permanent minoritarian government whose characteristics are essentially fascist and people are either number one or number two on their list of threats to what they consider all that is good and decent and godly. This sets us up for civil rights horrors. This is why being trans is relevant to my book because trans people are going to be the uh, collateral damage of our descent into illiberal democracy. And that should scare anyone because when you look at what the end state goal for uh, conservatives, for the people at CPAC is, is if they could have a society with no trans people in it, they would have it. And that is central to what we're seeing in places like Hungary, uh, where you can no longer have recognition of transgender identities. Um, once we cease to exist as a identifiable group, then it becomes a lot easier to do things to us, right? And we look at that and we see uh, withholding medical care, banning from the military, banning from sports, banning from access to medical care, like I said, uh, banning from public facilities. Then we had Joanna Harper who gave us a special sit down where she walked us through the continuing study she's been a part of to look into the clearing picture of advantage and disadvantage regarding transgender women in sport. There are a number of things that, that people don't look at. For instance, those who suggest that trans women have advantages because, um, you know, we are bigger and stronger on on average and then that is true but um you know first of all uh we allow advantages in sport what we don't allow is overwhelming advantage and then second of all trans women also have disadvantages in sports our larger bodies are now being uh <clears throat> propelled by reduced muscle mass and reduced aerobic capacity and so that can lead to disadvantages in things like quickness and recovery uh, and any number of other factors that, that can occur. So, um, you know, if all you say is, oh, well, trans women have advantages, then you're missing a lot of the bigger picture. And, and the, the bottom line in this is, can we have meaningful competition between trans women and cis women? That, that question is not completely answered at this point, but um, certainly from, from my point of view, the, the, the data look favorable uh, to, to uh, 
allowing trans women to compete in women's sports. Then on Trans Day of Visibility, we had a word with a person who has moved beyond allyship through leadership as the head of the Women's Flat Track Derby Association. And Erica Vanstone gave her blueprint to continue the progress her sport has made. Because we exist on sort of the fringe of sports, we're able to, to take steps that no other sport has been able to take. We're innovating in spaces that other sports only wish they could because they're tied down by all other types of um, oversight mechanisms. The, the amazing thing about roller derby and the WFTDA is that um, we are essentially managed by our athletes. Uh, if you look at the NFL or MLB, they've got the league and then they've got the players organization, uh, the players associations. We are both of those things at the same time. And our athletes contribute to our rules. They vote on our rules. They vote on our leadership. So it is a completely community run model. Uh, where the athletes are consistently and the community is consistently informing how the sport should grow and how the sport should be built. Sports need to pay attention to that. And I think increasingly conversations around safety, around um, capacity are pushing that in certain sports. I think you think of the NFL concussion conversation. There is this very adversarial relationship set up between the NFL and the Players Association when it comes down to talking about player safety. It's almost like a negotiation for how much abuse you'll allow the NFL to put your body through to make a certain amount of money. Within the WFTDA, those are things that we're investing in from the, from the get-go. Our model or our complete uh, approach to how sports sh could and should be run are really important in the conversation for athlete safety, for athlete equity moving forward. On to April and two more titans. One was Julia Serrano, the author of a tome of trans people. Whipping Girl gave a lot of perspectives on the changes since she wrote that important book. The second edition came out a year before the 10th anniversary, but it was like right around that time. And so they approached me about it and it really made sense to write, especially for me, what the, the addition to it is I wrote a preface. Yes. Uh, that's looking back at it that I think explains not only why, like how the book came to be and not only all, all the, the huge changes in trans history that happened just in that short five, 10 years-ish. Um, but I also got to explain kind of where the book was coming from because I think a lot of what I said is, still remains true, is fairly universal about trans experiences, especially for those of us on the like trans female, trans feminine spectrum mm -hmm. of the community. But um, also some of the language has shifted quite a bit <laughs> and so it gave me a chance to explain for instance in the subtitle i describe myself as a transsexual woman right. um, and i know a lot of times people nowadays are like the word transsexual to them sounds old or it sounds pathological Sounds like renee richards or something you know <laughs> yeah yeah but so when i was writing it though that was important because there was the a lot of the trans activists out of the 1990s a lot of whom um had taken steps to transition. Um, they might be non-binary, but like it was important that they 
how they move through the world and everything. And when I came out a little bit later, it was kind of like the height of there's a lot of like queer theory and there are a lot of people um, who were not um, how we would use, describe the word trans now who are kind of claiming that space. And I'm all for people being non-binary. I'm all for people being gender non-conforming. I'm for people doing drag. I think it's all great. But there was this real sense of what trans was, was blurring the lines. And I'm like, yeah, well, some of us actually have this experience where we understand ourselves to be a gender and we become that gender mm -hmm. um, sometimes social transition or physical transition, but I was trying to articulate some of those experiences. And so it felt necessary to use that word. So th that's like one example of, of like language that I use in the book and I explain why I use it in the book now with the preface. Um, and I think anyone who's been in the trans community, once you're in the trans community for more than a couple of years, you realize that that language is always shifting. Yes. <laughs> that like words sand. are very, yeah. And, and so if you really, really like a particular term, it could like go out of favor really quickly and then come back <laughs> a couple of years later. Also in April, we had Dr. Rachel Levine on the podcast, the Assistant Secretary for Health and Human Services, and the highest ranking transgender American to serve in our federal government. It was a proud moment to have her on board. Do you have any feelings about being called a trans trailblazer? Uh, I have no regrets whatsoever. I mean, I am grateful for all, all different aspects of my personal, of course, and professional, uh, professional career, because I think that everything, um, uh, everything builds upon um, uh, on your previous experiences. And so, um, you know, I, I, I used to say that I brought everything that I've ever learned ever uh, uh, to my job as the, at the Pennsylvania Department of Health, and I think that that's exactly true now as Assistant Secretary for Health at HHS, is that everything I've learned uh, in my clinical background, my educational background, you know, as a professor, um, in terms of my administrative experience, um, in terms of my research experience, at, you know, at the Penn State College of Medicine, I, and then all the experiences I had as the Physician General and the Secretary of Health, um, I bring to this position now. So um, I am grateful um, uh, and uh, will do everything I possibly can to use all of that experience for the common good. We also beamed up one of the best YouTube debaters in the game, Jangles Science Lad. And Jangles is not just someone who knows the debate, who's also a personal trainer. And he showed conclusively, when you're talking about transgender athletes, it's one thing to trust the science, it's another thing to actually know it. What were your three biggest contentions against what you saw in the Hilton and Lundberg research? Three biggest contentions. One is that they can uh, conflate trans women as a representative sample group of males. And even though they had a lot of research, the, the research that they were pulling would show that is not the case. So they'd say here is like the average male muscle mass. Uh, and as you can see, like uh, the trans women in this study, uh, their, their muscle mass only went down by this percentage. And that doesn't even come close. But when you look into the data in the studies that they were citing, trans women uniformly had significantly lower 
lower uh, muscle mass starting out before hormone treatment. So to say that they are a representative sample of males, and I, you can't see me since this is a podcast, but I have males in, in big heavy quotation marks. This is just simply inaccurate. This is not a good comparison. This is not, you're not uh, taking apples out of a group of apples. Um, another big contention is that because they're stated, I think what their, their motivated reasoning is to find why trans women it isn't fair for them to compete in uh, the the female category of sports. They'll take any d difference they can find and then blow it up. So, for example, they'll take they'll uh, in their list of big sex differences, the average differences between males and females. Uh, they list things like pelvic width and height, and they just kind of make this assumption that this is somehow this somehow matters in terms of sports performance where most of the data that says that no, not really. It doesn't really contribute to Q angles, for example, all that much. It doesn't seem to have any real impact in gates, which is how, you know, how the body runs. It doesn't seem to have any real impact in uh, the way the muscles attach that would provide force. And there are a ton of other factors involved uh, that are way more important than the simple uh, width of the pelvis. But they put that forth as one of the sex differences with, because it seems like it should matter. So another thing they'll do is bone density. We've all heard the bone density argument enough. The research that I was able to find, and no one's corrected me on this because I, I, I looked far and wide, bone density is a matter uh, of injury rather than of performance. So as long as you have sufficient bone density to prevent injury in any given sport, having more of it doesn't really help. For lung capacity, again, this is one of those things that sounds like it should really, really matter in, in the uh, discussion. Like bigger lungs, okay, bigger lungs means you're going to be better at endurance sports. Well, not necessarily for two reasons. One is that bigger people need bigger lungs. And so if you are taller, you need uh, more, you need bigger lung capacity to like fuel all that stuff. And two, and this is the way more important one, is that lung capacity doesn't, is not a, uh, a limiting factor in exercise performance in healthy individuals. Of course, the key word there is healthy. If you're a smoker, it doesn't really matter how – like, yeah, then, then it could be an issue if your lungs aren't big enough. Uh, but for the vast, vast, vast majority of athletes, lung capacity is not the, is not the limiting factor. It's the heart's ability to pump blood. Uh, it's the blood's ability to hold oxygen, and it's the muscle's ability to utilize oxygen, not the surface area that you have for gas exchange, which is what lung capacity is there to measure. From the April showers came the May flowers, and flowers – for old captain, my captain, Don Ennis, who moved to a new command, which means I had to shift over and take the calm. And my orders from the old captain were crystal clear. And in her farewell that she can read and out sports, she also gave me a challenge going forward of moving into this center seat. Quote, I am hopeful my friend, contributor, and co-host Carly Webb will continue to tell inspiring stories through her words at Outsports and use her powerful voice on the Outsports podcast, The Transporter Room. And we opened up with some strength sports superstars from Pool for Pride. How much do you think the the whole struggle that J.C. Cooper has gone through has raised awareness within the strength sports community? I would say substan I mean, substantial impact, um, positively and negatively, right? Like the reactionary side, we are still seeing. Um, you know, JC, I was talking about this thing. I made a post about this on my Instagram account, trying to connect how, you know, JC's fight for trans inclusion in USAPL, something that I remember back in 2019, folks were saying was just limited to, to USAPL, but it wasn't an issue, right? Like, 
how that led all the way to her fight being cited by Senator Ted Cruz during the Judiciary Committee hearing on the Equality Act as literally a reason to oppose the Equality Act was because trans women would then infiltrate sports and would literally like would out deadlift cisgender women like had that conversation during a, a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the Equality Act like I think the the impact of JC's advocacy is widespread and is absolutely informing, but both mobilizing folks to take action to oppose these horrific anti-trans bills at the state level, um, as well as the federal level now, um, calling in federations saying, how dare you? We demand better and more. Later in May, I had what became an early birthday present. Three days before yours truly turned 50, I got a glimpse of a golf pro with, who came from a rough past and is headed to a great future. Two weeks before getting beamed up to the transporter room, Haley Davidson, a 28-year-old golf pro from Florida via Scotland, won her first pro tournament on the National Women's Golf Association Tour. And Davidson is eyeing a big goal, an LPGA Tour card for 2022. Haley Davidson now has a tour card. Mm-hmm. Next February, first hole. And you hear the announcer say, coming up, making her LPGA debut. From Jupiter, Florida, Haley Davidson. Get the golf claps to that tee box. You have the driver in your hand. You're looking in the distance. What do you think will go through your mind at that moment? Oh my God, don't miss it. Please don't miss it. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's, that, that's been like any time, and this is a big thing just throughout the year. People will probably realize I do in the first tee. It'll be a cool experience. To be honest, knowing me, I'll probably find something funny or dumb to do or say. That's just, uh, I'm sure I'll make some sort of dumb comment on myself for, you know, that's just the kind of stuff I do. That's how I break the ice with myself through joke and laughter. So, I'll have quite some time to think of something great to say, I'm sure. <laughs> at, the, at the same time, do you think there'll be a thought for, say, Dr. Lancaster at that point? For Miana Bagger yeah. at that point? For Elena Lawless at that point? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll definitely be, you know, one thing, and, and I even do it now, you know, I even think of the, the people before me, even though there's only been three, you know, um, it's still three people will help me get to where I am today. So, you know, I, I always keep that in mind, you know, regardless of what I've had to do and things like that. Um, you know, I, w- I wouldn't be in the, the position I am without those people. Welcome to June, the halfway point. I'm starting to get in the hang of the solo hosting thing. And sport was getting in the hang of inclusion from victory podiums in Europe to the coming Olympic Games to this announcement that had pride, poise, and a commitment to excellence. What's up, people? I'm Carl Massive. just want to take a quick moment to say that I'm gay. I've been meaning to do this for a while now, but I finally feel comfortable enough to get it off my chest. Um, I just think that representation and visibility are so important. I actually hope that like one day, videos like this and the whole coming out process are just not necessary. But until then, you know, I'm going to do my best and do my part to cultivate a culture that's accepting, that's compassionate. It wasn't all Eden. And the snake 
was down in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis signing a bill to ban trans students from school sports on the first day of Pride. In contrast, our first show of Pride featured staunch allies, authors and champion ultra-distance runners David Roche and Megan Roche. The conversation was as lively as it was learned. You know, there is that statement that everybody seems to be using right now, trust the science. Well, as scientists, both of you, what are some of the biggest myths that you see that people have about the science surrounding the issue of transgender inclusion in athletics? So the biggest problem here, and it's frustrating as a coach, it's like when you coach, when you're like Megan, a doctor and exercise, like, or in epidemiologist and all those other things, you see that adaptation and performance are so complicated. There are thousands of variables that go into um, what actually happens on the sports field. Um, but perhaps some of the, the critics would argue that one variable, testosterone, at a young age is a driving factor in all of the other variables. And that's simply not the way it works when you look at in practice how all this stuff unfolds. I love that you brought up the idea of testosterone because that truly is just one variable in a sea of thousands of variables that are being impacted by yeah. the transition process. And I think it's so unfair. Like we would never like in, in real world data, you don't cherry pick one, one variable in that process. And I think the other thing too about real world data that David and I tried to emphasize in the podcast too, is, is that statistically speaking, if trans athletes are competing, we are going to have state champions, national champions, Olympians in this process, because statistically that should happen. And that's a great thing. And that's an awesome thing and should be celebrated. But a highlight of June and one of the highlights of this year for me was a special interview with our Triumph Award winner for coaching, Lane Ingram. The head women's basketball coach at Lansing Community College in Michigan found his calling to coach at the same time he was moving into his own as a transgender man. It was one of my favorite interviews in part because it got into the human side of finding one's truth and all those intersections therein. You, When you've accomplished and then you take this new fork in the road because you need to take it. I can't believe you're going to ask this. <laughs> what, how do you, in a sense, how do you reconcile all that? Do mm -hmm. you reconcile all that? What do you keep? What do you compartmentalize? How do you deal? Wow. Because I struggle you know, with that. It I takes, it takes another, it, yeah. Only another trans person can know to ask you that question. Because I don't, I don't know how if people really understand what it's like, you know. I mean, it's so funny that you said that. So get this: last night I was on my computer, and you know I was doing some stuff, and I found uh, our NCAA tournament game from 2001. This is an important game because, like, I had 27 points in the second half. It was on national TV. We that won. was the was Virginia cool. game. How, yes. How do you know? Okay, that you was do the do Virginia your research. Game. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've, I've been watching women's basketball a long time. Got it. <laughs> so, so I, I am looking for these video files. I'm working on this project and I see it. So I click it and I put it on my screen over here to kind of watch in the background. And to be perfectly honest, right. I remember that moment because it was one of the greatest moments of my life. My family was in the crowd. Like, my team, you know, we played great. I had a great second half. I remember that. But when I'm watching it, right, like, I know it's me. It's me, right? But 
it's almost like a before that's my that's my before life you know um and i'm gonna tell you two ways that i look at it right so as i'm watching that game what i'm looking at is the people that i played with and remembering how i felt at the time right like i got really emotional like my brother was in the crowd and that was an important time in my life and i loved doing that right but that's not me and i and i distinctly remember looking like yeah that's you but that's the you you had to be right to get done what you were trying to get done which was to go to school for free to play basketball to free your dream try to make it to WNBA right like that was the dream that's what i was doing um the other way i look at it as you know and I'm being honest with you, since you asked me this, there's a, there's a block of time in my life that probably is in a box way back there. You know, like, you know, I probably, if I, if I was to be honest, I probably stopped when I graduate from college and I just kind of grew up to be who I am right now. Like, this is how I would imagined I grew up to be if it had worked out right. And you're hearing the red alert sound. That means we're taking a break, giving love to the sponsors. But when we come back, the second half from the flame in Tokyo to a ring in Miami to big battles for trans rights and big changes coming in elite sport. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and we're moving into the second half of our look back at 2021. Now, July was the countdown. Olympics and Paralympics coming to Tokyo, and even without the fans, Domo Oregato, coronavirus, it was still glorious, especially for the Olympics featured 185 out athletes, 56 of them won medals including a world record holder. The Paralympics had 36 out athletes and 19 medal winners. Now, among those 56 brilliant people who won medals at the Olympics was the first trans and non-binary medal winner, Quinn, midfielder for Canada women's soccer. And that was part of a massive upset for Team Canada. They said that they wanted to change the color of the medal, and they did it in style by winning a gold medal. Mark Tewksbury, himself an out-and-proud former Olympic champ, was beamed up to the transporter room excited about what Quinn did on the pitch and what their performance meant for the future. Yeah, well, I love it. I mean, what's interesting is sport can be a double-edged sword. For some people, it can be just a horrible experience and one of exclusion. And I think back to all many of our uh, high school gym days or junior high gym <laughs> class, right? We're all slightly all traumatized. And yet at the same time, sport can be this incredible vehicle for inclusion and visibility and representation. And so that we saw all the great stuff. And I think right now, trans issues for me are, are really... I feel like we're, we were a little bit with the LNG rights maybe 25, 30 years ago, where we were really in the front and pushing and activism. And I feel like trans issues are finally getting that same air, but it's really tough. Like a lot of the news you hear is 
People are so discriminatory and so afraid and acting from that place of fear and making law. And so I think that the trans community really deserve to have a fabulous, great news story and an excellent role model. Now, with that in mind, as a member of Canada's Olympic Committee, looking past Tokyo towards Beijing in 22, Paris 24, what are some of the priorities that you're seeing from your position? Well, as an Olympic committee, I mean, of course, performance is always very important. And so uh, that's the number one raison d'etre for us. The second raison d'etre is to promote Olympism in Canada. And so we're really going to push hard for sport to be more accessible to all Canadians. We're going to do a big campaign for that. Um, we're really very consciously outreaching to our uh, Indigenous community that has perhaps not been as representative as it as it needs to be at the tables of power, but also in participation in sport. Um, we've got a really excellent new Canadian. We've got really uh, solid immigration uh, programs in Canada. So we have to outreach to new Canadians and just keep growing that funnel. We're only a country of 35 million. So it's really important that we get as many people active as we can. There was a controversial story that was a major one. It was the story of Laurel Hubbard, weightlifter from New Zealand, the first transgender woman to qualify in an individual event and set to be a part of these Tokyo Olympic Games. And she's been the target of a lot of brickbats from a lot of people for nearly two years. We brought on Wakato University professor Jamie Veal who's also a member of the board of directors of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, for a view from the ground from New Zealand on the perceptions of Hubbard at home and abroad and what the Olympics could look like for her. We, we actually really get behind our own. Um, Laurel's faced some, some really massive, um, so, some massive, um, I guess, barriers like, really to, to face against the odds, so against these IOC guidelines and this career-threatening injury that she's had. Um, so I think a lot of people here in New Zealand, not just the Prime Minister, are just saying, look, she just deserves, she's done, she's done, the, um, she's done what was required of her. She just needs to, like every other Olympic competitor, be able to just concentrate on her sport. You've probably seen the mean tweets. I've seen quite a bit of them about how it would be an embarrassment if she won a medal. Yeah. What is the psychology behind these terms such as biological male? What, well, yeah. what is that, what's really at play there when someone uses that term? Yeah, so look, what I, what I think is it actually is, is really these people showing their true colors. So often you'll see this couched in this, you know, we're supposedly, um, protecting women, and when they say women, they read, you know, just cis women. They're, they're obviously excluding trans women from their definition of woman. And look, when they're, then they're blatantly misgendering like that, you know, it, it's just showing that actually it's coming out that what this is really about is not about um, supposedly protecting women, but, you know, this is about not seeing Laurel for who she is. Um, and not seeing Laurel as, a, as, as the woman that she is. The reality is that she's the first, so, so that she is being a trailblazer there. You know, even the most conservative estimates of the number of people in the population who are trans. Um, and you think about the number of athletes that we have at the Olympics. I just checked it out. We have, we're going to have 11,000 athletes at the, at the Tokyo Olympics. 
even with the most conservative estimates of transgender pe- number of transgender people, you'd expect at least tens, you know, even up to 100 trans people there if there was equality for trans people. Now, the Olympics themselves started with a lot of fireworks. On the first day of competition, Quinn hit the field, and within the first five days, Team LGBTQ had a nice little medal hall, and one of those was British diving ace Tom Daly after all those years securing that medal. Now, here's a person we've seen grow up and out and proud, and and we made sure we got his thoughts known on what this meant, not just for himself, but for those who come after. This was one of the sound bites of the year. Check it out. There are more openly out LGBT athletes at this Olympic Games than any other Olympic Games previously. And, you know, I just think, well, I came out in 2013, um, December 2013, and I... When I was younger, I always felt like the one that was alone and different and didn't fit in and wasn't, there was something about me that was always never going to be as good as what society wanted me to be. And I hope that any young LGBT person out there can see that no matter how alone you feel right now, you are not alone and that you can achieve anything. And there is a whole lot of your chosen family out here ready to support you. Um, and I think it's one of those things that I feel incredibly proud to say that I am a gay man that, and also an Olympic champion. And I think it's something that, I, I mean, I feel very empowered by that because, you know, it's, when I was younger, I thought that I was never going to be anything or achieve anything because of who I was. And to be an Olympic champion now just shows that you can achieve anything. And in between, there were plenty of others. Yulimar Rojas of Venezuela taking the women's triple jump where it's never been before, beyond 51 feet, and to a world record. We also did a spotlight show on the Castor Semenya rule surrounding the situation involving Namibian sprinters Beatrice Masalinga and Christine Mabuma. And Mabuma mined herself some precious medals at the Olympics. She was allowed to run the 200 meters. She came home with a surprise silver medal. But as the Olympics and the Paralympics turned on, there were a lot of things going on in other parts of the sporting world. On the opening week of the Olympics, the transporter room beamed up somebody most of you didn't know, but you were going to learn her name pretty quick. She had signed on to a debut MMA bout scheduled for that week. She will be the first trans woman to step in that arena since Fallon Fox's last fight in 2014. But the fight was postponed, thank you COVID, to September 10th. That person's name? Alana McLaughlin. You're going to be making a statement. Yeah. You're going to be making a statement. What what statement do you want to make walking in? Well, I, I want to preface it. Uh, first, the, the people that say that uh, sports should be kept apolitical, sports, sports have never been apolitical. It's, it's not possible, especially when people's identities are politicized. Uh, I mean, look at Colin Kaepernick, look at just, just historically, Muhammad Ali, you know, uh, black folks, their, their presence in sports has been politicized trans folks like we're being politicized like we don't we don't get to not be political just walking around as a trans woman every day being alive 
is a political act in a country that's hostile to your very existence. If you could go back and explain, go back, say, about 26 years to a younger you in, growing up in South Carolina, how would you explain to that kid what you're about to do right now? You know, that is a good question. I'm not sure that, um, you know, if I were to talk to that kid 26 years ago, I don't even know that 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 younger version of me would be in a place to even engage with it. Like there was there was so much going on back then, uh, so much trauma. I really didn't think about much of anything outside of myself back then. Um, it was just a kind of a daily emotional struggle to survive. Um, I would hope that anything that a current version of me said to that, to that kid would, would sort of be a bright spot would be, um, a beacon saying, you know, this, this is what can happen. You know, there, there is a future because back then I didn't, I didn't think I'd live this long, honestly. Remember that name. You'll be hearing it again. One thing we haven't talked about much, the running 30-plus state skirmish over anti-trans legislation. Now, we told you earlier about Florida joining a handful of states that signed those trans student-athlete bans, but the punch-counterpunch was reaching fever pitches nationwide. And, of course, everything here was bigger in Texas. Five large-scale hearings on attempt to pass laws such as bans on student-athletes and bans on affirming care for those under 18. The rhetoric from June to October was white hot. We need young ladies to have continued access to sports without interference from biological males. If we have biological males competing in athletics of women's sports, and those schools that have that situation begin to win, you will see, over a course of time, coaches trying to figure out how to compete against those biological males. Sports saved my life, but in the end, it is so much larger than that. These past few months, I have sat through many Senate and House sessions where elected officials seek to debate whether the trans children under their jurisdiction are worthy of protection. And to be very frank, I'm tired. We keep telling you the same thing. Doctors, pediatricians, mothers, fathers, psychiatrists, teachers, students, children, all sorts of people from all walks of life have told you how dangerous this bill is and everything it implies. Uh, at this point, if you don't understand how dangerous this bill is, that's your responsibility. Uh, because you should know, after all, this is the education committee. Good teachers are good learners. As a woman and as an athlete, I face many challenges to equity at sport. But I assure you that transgender women and girls is not one of them. I wanted to talk about this concept that we've been hearing all day about transgendered children. I get sick to my stomach when I hear that. I'm eight years old and I love playing sports. I am also a trans girl, though I wish I didn't have to tell you that. None of you will be affected by this bill and none of the people who want it to pass will either. But I will be directly affected. It could change the course of my life. It could end my life. 
Friend could already have a hard time in the world, <clears throat> and you want to take away one of my favorite things, playing sports. So please let me play. Let me skin my knees sliding into home, cheer for my teammates when they score, and feel the freedom of running as fast as I can. We beamed up someone who could relate to the scene in Texas. Her name was Zoe Zephyr. She's a trans woman in Montana who's an athlete and a scholar. She was a highly recruited wrestling prospect while also struggling with finding and being her best self when she was in high school. When the anti-trans legislation was under consideration in Montana earlier in the year, she didn't hesitate. She spoke out and continued all the way to what she's currently doing. She's running for a seat in her state legislature now. In an August interview, she talked about why it mattered for her to stick her nose in the fight. It was terrifying to jump into it. And it was terrifying because um, I had been uh, stealth in my transition. I hadn't really, uh, like some friends knew, but publicly no one really knew that I was uh, trans. And so it was a very conscious decision to say, okay, now I'm going to not just do this, but do this at a place that is like openly hostile <laughs> to trans people um, and put your name in a place where it will um, be etched into the public record. But I had done in, in 2020, um, I had ended up uh, through knowing some friends, um, uh, fellow queer friends from pride and whatnot, uh, ended up working uh, security at a handful of the protests over the summer, um, basically tracking neo-Nazis as they tried to infiltrate uh, George Floyd protests. Um, and being involved with that community, uh, you very quickly, like people who were, were talking and people who were doing on the ground work would reach out to everyone who had been there. Cause it was like, okay, you're the kind of pe people who are, you know, boots on the ground uh, activists. Um, and so that's, uh, that was kind of my inspiration and courage to try to go in and do it. And then I realized we didn't really have trans athletes talking about this. There aren't a ton, a ton of us and there's not a ton of us in Montana. Um, and outside of uh, Juniper Eastwood who had run uh, division one track um, trans gal who'd run division one track, uh, for the university of Montana. Um, there wasn't anyone else talking. And so I thought I'd be a voice and off I went. <laughs> Zephyr was one of many on the front lines in the United States and abroad. We were proud to beam up. Another was part of one of our best podcasts of the year, perhaps even our best September 15th. He came on the heels of Alana McLaughlin, told you to remember that name, and her MMA debut, a win over Francis Céline Provost. It was also two days after Carl Nassib made the play that led to the overtime win for the Las Vegas Raiders against the Baltimore Ravens on dun, 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 Monday Night Football. We also had Fallon Fox on the show to provide analysis of the McLaughlin-Provost fight and the post-fight. And we had YouTube star and the host of Turf Wars, Katie Montgomery, beaming up from the UK. 
and she gave us the 411 on what's going down on Turf Island. What is the hardest part of being trans in the United Kingdom right now? I think for most trans people, it's access to healthcare. In the UK, we have sort of two different ways people can get healthcare. One is um, the NHS, and that's the only option for most people. And then the other option is private healthcare, and you just need a lot of money to do that. And whenever I talk to Americans, I always just want to say the NHS is amazing for everything apart from health, trans healthcare. Um, for which it is absolutely horrific, and the waiting lists are six or seven years long to see someone. Um, and then even when you see someone, the system, like they've specifically designed the system to make it go as slow as possible, so it takes you years to get through it. Um, and it's a complete disgrace because most people just cannot access any healthcare, you know, for up to a decade, and that that's people's lives. That's a huge chunk of someone's life. So that's that's the worst thing. But the second worst thing is probably the media. The UK media is a lot smaller than in the US. Like you, you're a huge country and you've got these different media outlets and they're just separate from each other. Ours is very insular. Everyone who writes for the media in general went to the same few schools and they've all worked at different newspapers. You get these journalists who will write for like The Spectator, which is like a borderline far-right paper, and The Guardian. Once, once like, headed by Andrew Neil, who just left GB News. Yeah, exactly. So, and you get people that they'll write an article for both in the same week. Also, I think another factor of it, like you mentioned earlier, there are some people involved in this claiming to be feminists, you know, the TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists. Um, we do have those, though the gender critical movement's kind of moved away from feminism a bit more now. I do well, think of course, since they're like they're like palling around with the Heritage Foundation and the Alliance Defending Freedom. Yeah. <laughs> Your favorite yeah, transphobes in mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, like, part of that, I wonder, is that UK feminism has been able to be like white feminism for a long time because we are um, less culturally diverse. We're a smaller, like, country. We've been, like, you know, an imperial power for hundreds of years. And um, whereas I think. The U.S. having maybe more of a turbulent past and a more diverse, um, like, history and group of people and, like, cultures and stuff has had to confront, um, like, white feminism as a concept. In October, we got the climax of the battle for Texas, at least for now. The trans student-athlete ban bill passed after four tries. But Texas activist Ash Hall, who joined us a few days after the bill was signed, said that trans Texans in the proud spirit of Monica Roberts have only begun to fight. The Senate hearings got so bad with uh, Senator Charles Perry and Senator um, Lois Kolkhorst with the misgendering, with interrupting our witnesses as they came up, with asking asking inappropriate questions about the genitalia of our kids, that we started boycotting Senate hearings on these bills. Um, and so that in part was based on the reaction that parents had to going through that in the first place. So it's been exhausting for them. The travel is exhausting. Having to sit around in a cold building for hours and hours waiting to be called up, exhausting having to defend the humanity of their kids repeatedly exhausting. So 
they keep doing it though, because the alternative is we don't show up and these bills pass through even faster and our kids are in danger. So of course, all of them keep coming back to protect their own kids. And even, um, and I think this is particularly touching, even the parents who've had kids that have now graduated high school and gone off to college in other states are coming back because they feel a kinship with the other parents and want their kids to be safe. So even though it's exhausting and it's heartrending, they keep coming back. And at this point, what we've been able to do to make it easier is we always wait together in the same room during these hearings. And we cheer for our folks when they go up and speak. We make sure that there's food and water and that we're really taking care of each other so that even though these hearings are inherently traumatizing, we can ease some of the pain of that by sticking together and at least creating community and comfort uh, and carving out our own space in the Capitol. In October and November, we beamed up a number of interesting guests around the common theme. Voices among transgender people, queer people, and allies in sports that aren't heard enough. And we started with E. Kerr, a former college softball player turned coach at the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania. Like looking back now, if I had this awareness of my body and of my identity back in high school, I don't know if I would still be playing softball because when it started to really be brought to light in my mind, it was hard for me to pitch. It was hard for me to want to go to practice knowing I was going to be in the wrong body and having to use that body to perform so well and to compete, even though I didn't want to be in that body at all. And so I just don't know what what it would have been like for me. And it was really hard um, sophomore year and last year, just trying to go to practice and and play because my brain was so caught up in the dysphoria. And it was just hard for me to focus on wanting to compete and wanting to play the sport. What are some, based on the experience you've had, what are some things that, that, sports teams, that schools, that colleges, that universities need to understand when a trans student comes into the space and when a trans student athlete comes into the space? I think that there needs to be a level, a baseline level of understanding and communication between the coaches and the teammates, even just within like within the coaching staff and within the team dynamic, because if you're able to be open about what you're struggling with, and this is for anything involving like mental health, uh, physical health, just being able to be open, you can get the support you need and you can feel like you're in a space where you're safe to express your feelings and kind of be yourself. So I think having that understanding and that communication is really important. We also beamed up Taylor Edelman. 10 years ago, he was among the first trans student athletes to compete under the NCAA's trans student athlete policy as a volleyball player at Purchase College in New York. I can tell you, it was quite a story and one of my favorites of the year. How did the game change for you? Because Mm -hmm. I'm an aficionado of college volleyball, especially. 
Women hit hard, men hit hard at yeah. every level of the cop. When you're talking about the college game, you're talking about a whole new dimension of speed. Yeah, it's and intense. And for you, what was it? What was it like? How long did it take you to really make that adjustment? It probably took me the first couple of games to be like, "Whoa, this is this is this is a different level." Because we even played some D two teams, and there's a big difference between D three and D two. Um, and I knew when I was going in as D3, it was going to be fairly competitive. Definitely took me the first couple of games. I remember I got reamed in the face. I was in my outside hitter spot in the fourth position at the front front of the net. And this one guy went up to swing this middle hitter. Oh, my gosh. I was, bef- I was before the 10-foot line, and he just smacked it on an angle so hard at my face but the awesome thing was i was able to keep the ball in play because it bounced right off my forehead (laughs) we ended up playing the point that's when i realized i was like this is this is serious business i had never ever been hit in the face that was my job i was hitting people in the face i was hitting people doing my thing and uh but i hung on yeah i was still an outside hitter i was still getting double blocked five foot seven were the average player out on the court for volleyball team is at least six feet tall. We also heard from Megan Crutchley. They're a fitness professional with a lofty goal to make LGBTQ competency a part of the certification process. It's pretty horrific when you look at um, how dehumanizing this conversation is when we're talking just about diversity. And that's the thing that is really problematic for me is that fitness is a very homogeneous space. It's extremely gendered and it's extremely, um, there's, there's a, a, a real kind of look for this is how men look. And then this is how women look in the fitness space. And then everything kind of falls suit from that, like non-binary. So I think the way that it becomes more humanized is is again, having conversations, but we also have to have like, this is what part of what I want to be doing in my sort like the main thing is I, my whole thing is I just want to make fitness more accessible for more people. I want to make it safe for the queer community. And I also want coaches because I have a huge network of friends who are coaches that literally have no dialogue that are, you know, contact me and they're like, I don't know what language to use. One of my clients just came out as non-binary. I, how do I support them? You know, and so I think that a really big part of this has to do with education, that the queer community, that trans and non-binary people have been so marginalized for so long and continue to be, that I think that there just needs to be more contact. I think there needs to be more conversation. And we actually can't assume that people know about any of these issues besides what they see on the media, unfortunately, because for so many people, that is not a part of their consciousness of what they think about when they think about diversity. And in November, we had Team Trans Hockey coming back after a two-year layoff. They had a big slate of games in Madison, Wisconsin. Team members Avery Cordingly and Mason Lefebvre were beamed up to talk about being back on the ice, and back in the game. Avery, what's it going to be like breaking out that Team Trans jersey on home ice? It's past due. I can wear it to all the stick and pucks I want, but it's 
not the same. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. Mason's going to have to force me to eat that morning because I'm going to be very... Mm. Yeah, that could be interesting. Just force each other to eat breakfast. Uh, it's not going to break until I until I do the first shift. Like the, We have to sit through the first two games. We're the third game, so... <laughs> it's going to be me running around the ring trying to finish all the things and someone saying that I get to do the task managing on the day of telling me to stop. We'll yeah. see how it works. We're going to have to find at least one person who is going to be Mason that day and one person who's going to be Avery and just, here's my tablet, here's the passcode for it, go do everything that I wrote down that I needed to get done, because otherwise I will and I won't have time to enjoy myself. Uh On Trans Awareness Week, with an assist from your favorite wrestling guru and mine, Brian Bell, we got the Notorious Angel on the heels of a pro wrestling debut in the UK with a new combine, and with a large goal to not only become a champion, but to build a legacy for today and tomorrow. By the way, Auntie Amber, what's it like knowing that there's going to be a future generation who could be picking that mantle up one day? Because I'm looking at the picture right now of you and your niece. And your niece that looks like your right. manager. And your niece looks like your manager in this shot. My my niece is my everything. Um, she's one of the reasons why I do what I do because I see the love and the passion that she has for wrestling. And it's like looking back at me when I was that age. And um, you know when when people ask her about her auntie Amber. She says, my auntie Amber is a professional, is a wrestler, and she's the best. And I cry. Um, and it's something that my niece wants to get into. So when she's old enough, I'm going to be taking her training and be like, you know what, baby girl? It's going to be me and her face of the world. She's my future tag team partner, you know. As we headed into the holiday season, the stocking was filmed with big news and big news makers. In November, the International Olympic Committee announced that new guidelines for trans participation will come into effect in March 2022. At the same time, the fallout from the Dave Chappelle Netflix controversy was still falling out. And we got a unique perspective from Mixed Dahlia Bell, a black trans woman who has quite the knack for making people laugh. And she wrote in an op-ed in The Guardian, she has a knack for making people think. Team Turf, gut reaction to hearing that. Can we just note that throughout that special, right, Dave Chappelle claims that his issue is not with trans people, but with white people. And he then proceeds to cape for J.K. Rowling, Caitlyn Jenner, and mourn the death of Daphne Dorman. These three women have one very clear thing in common, and that is that they are all white. They are all white women. Dave Chappelle loves him some white women. <laughs> not so much black women. He does, he's not a big fan of us. For you, where do you find in this week even as we're looking at awareness and all these issues and 
the the still the discriminatory bearing of the laws that we're seeing and of course the litany that gets read year after year and it seems to get bigger we're we're at 46 right now mm-hmm. where do you find trans joy trans community we are amazing and i feel bad for transphobes because they're missing out on good music good fashion the best jokes and amazing orgasms like we have skills in every major discipline and (laughs) they're just depriving themselves for thanksgiving i was especially grateful for an hour with raquel willis yes that Raquel Willis. There are a lot of people who are feeling like they don't know who they are. If you spend all these years raising cis men and boys to think that they're going to have the experience of, you know, their grandfathers in a world where more and more folks identify as feminists and see inequality between the genders where people are less essentialist than they're thinking than ever before, where queer and trans people have platforms and can, can be ourselves more than ever before. Yeah. You're, you're going to feel like you're not getting the journey that you were entitled to. And so I, I can understand that. I can understand why you would you would feel inadequate, but it it's not these more marginalized folks fault that you feel that inadequacy. And in fact, it's the folks who are regurgitating this and clouding your judgment who are often the ones to blame. So I mean. I think that we need to move into a space where we think about masculinity in more expansive ways. What is your masculinity outside of this idea that it's rooted in domination? You know, those kind of concepts of masculinity fuel have fueled colonialism, have fueled so many other ways in which this world has been ravaged and peoples have been ravaged. Whole entire cultures have been ravaged. And I see that in the same lineage. In December, a friend of the show opened up from down under. Kirsty Miller, Australian athlete, advocate, and definitely unafraid to speak her mind, spoke her mind about the new changes coming from the IOC. Around 25% of us naturally would have lower testosterone levels than the 10 nanomoles now. Like 25% of elite male athletes and elite male Olympic champion athletes in sports like weightlifting have levels below the 5 nanomoles naturally. But other girls like me, I was 30. But there's no correlation between me being more athletic at 30 then this person at five. So the ones that had this arbitrary T-level before, it made no sense. It was just an arbitrary T-level. There was no assessment of speed. There's no assessment of endurance. There was no assessment of, of strength or physique. 
It was merely an arbitrary T-level, which makes absolutely no sense. And anyone that says it does, they're not even at the starting line anymore, Carly. They're truly not. So absolutely. And there's girls now, about 13.5% of girls that XX have high testosterone levels, you know. And there is in each individual human being, there is um, around 100 different androgen receptors, 40,000 genes, nine different chromosome types. So the possibilities of with volume T to, to determine athletic performance, the infinite possibilities that can never happen, Carly. So those people have got to put it out of their mind and stop comparing this, how long does it take Kirsty to minimize this or that? That's irrelevant anymore. December was also a month for giving, and Brittany De La Creta returned to the transporter room to give us the inside story of their gift of labor and sports history love. They, along with noted sports writer Lindsay D'Arcangelo, wrote Hail Mary, a history of the Women's Professional Football League. And I can tell you, it's a book worth reading. People are just really uncomfortable with the idea that women can play sports, right? And it becomes about masculinity, both in that women who play sports are somehow seen as masculine because sports is such a masculine domain. And so that's automatically a negative and they're going to be knocked for that, but they can't win because at the same time, they're also going to be knocked for not being as good as (laughs) men in men's eyes. Right. Um, And so I think there's just something really threatening to not just the status quo, but also like gender roles, gender norms, as they are generally accepted in society. And there is a certain segment of people who are really insecure about about that. And those are the people that are going to be riled up by this. You know, what I've actually really loved about um, seeing the reception to Hail Mary so far is I knew that women's sports fans were going to be into this book. I knew queers were going to be into this book. I knew, you know, women's history people would be into this book. But what's been so cool is the straight dudes who are like real big football history nerds who don't even bat an eye. And they're like, oh, this book is crucial and I need to own it. And they recognize it as part of the history of the game. And there's a segment of men who have been trying to like track down merch from these teams and they want to collect it. And, you know, to me, that's that's what shows you. The only people who are threatened by the women's game are people who are insecure or like don't actually understand. But the people who care about the sport, they know immediately, inherently, this league was important and I want to know everything that I can about it. Like some a bunch of dudes from football history, Twitter made us a Wikipedia page. Like the league now has a Wikipedia really? page because of those people, you know, because of those people. So that's been really cool. I was also part of a wonderful holiday exchange with Phoebe Rose, the host of the popular streaming series Transition Stories. I did her show on the Thanksgiving weekend, and then a few weeks later, she came to do mine and told her story and her take on some of the issues surrounding trans people right now. I want you to see me as the same as you. Nothing else, nothing more. 
nothing less. I don't want special treatment. I don't want special sympathy. I don't want to be treated any less favourably. And again, I don't want to be treated any more favourably. I just want a fair crack at the whip. I don't want to be told by people that I'm a Tim, the trans-identifying male, or a Tiff, the trans-identifying female. I don't want to be people to turn around and say that I'm faking this. Well, Phoebe, with that in mind, a question. What's it like for you when you wake up and you pick up the sun or a Tory graph or the Daily Fail or you watch a certain morning show in Britain back when a certain person was on it? What was that like for you when you when you see yourself and other Brit and other trans people in Britain? It just seems like there's an endless dog pile. People say Godwin's Law is a thing. Those of you who are unaware, Godwin's Law says that it devolves into comparisons with Nazism. But it really does. And as somebody who's of Jewish heritage, I'd have a lot more ancestors if the Third Reich didn't exist. I'd have a lot more. And I have personally looked into a lot of the ways that dehumanizing of Jewish people took place. And it's exactly the same. Dehumanization of trans people. What is it like for you when, for example, Pierce Morgan goes and says, I'm a pansexual parrot or whatever nonsense that he's going to say? He can say whatever he wants. And he is one of the most hated men in England. When he went and did his show in America, people in England rejoiced. And we said, you can keep him. And then when you sent him back, you were like, no, we don't want him back. <laughs> there are very few things that I will say that Jeremy Clarkson got 100% right. When he clocked him on the last flight of Concord, there was a part <laughs> of me that went, I don't like the violence, but there was a part of me that went, Jeremy, you got it right. And much love to the Pool for Pride 2021 Share the Platform Scholarship winners. We beamed up a group of the winners, and we talked a lot about trans joy that day. First time that I've ever really like been called an athlete, and I was like, "Oh no, I'm an athlete! Like I'm I'm doing things, and like <laughs> I prove that every time I go to the gym." The reason I'm out there lifting is just because like I really enjoy it, and like I just want to you know lift and get see if my lifts are get white lights or red lights you know that's going to mean everything for me to qualify there as like as the person i am holding my identities and like even when i was beating up on myself you know that's when i kind of had to step back and be like you know look where you were and like compared to where you are now what's what's really helped me in in like understanding who i am and understanding what i'm capable of is is the park skating um I like to call it, there's there's this fear curtain. Like everything in park skating is scary and everything could possibly hurt you severely. Yeah. But um, the euphoria, like, like understanding now that like as long as I can drop in, as long as my feet go into the bowl, I'm capable of literally anything. Like there's just something about when I'm in and skating that there's no inhibitions. Like, I have, I have somehow, when I skate, it's either recklessness and I just don't care about my body, 
or it's either uh, it's somehow like I can I'm able to find that middle section of the curtain of fear and being able to push back. And of course, our last show of the year. Talk about trans joy. Outsports 2021 Trans Athlete Advocate of the Year, Alana McLaughlin, and 2021 Outsports Triumph Pioneer Award winner, Fallon Fox, together beamed up to the same stage. It was a fitting way to end a special year. And I'm going to post that one right next to the cast you're listening to because it was worth listening to. And I enjoyed it. And with that, we're off and running for 2022. That's the transporter room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. Live long and prosper and study as she goes. I'll catch you next week.